The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Uh, are you familiar with um, Erica Lyle? From Channel 6? Yeah, exactly. Um, I scheduled you for a sit-down with her just to amplify the official line on the convoy. You want me to go on TV and repeat that line of bullshit? Yes. Yes, I do. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 4th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Our guest today is Andrew Lawton, author of... The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. Hello, Andrew. Hey, good to talk to you, Robert. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, good to see you again. Um, I'll give the official um, introduction, the official bio of Andrew, right from the book, so I'll, I'll make sure I'll cover all my bases. For those who don't know, Andrew Lawton is a senior journalist at True North and host of The Andrew Lawton Show. He previously hosted a daily talk show on Global News Radio, which I listened to quite religiously, Andrew, in London, Ontario. And he published a written uh, work across the world, um, including the Washington Post, National Post, Toronto Sun, on Global News. Andrew has appeared as a commentator on CBC. We won't hold that against you. Uh, CTV, TVO, CTS, and BBC World. But the unofficial biography is I've known Andrew for a number of years. He's, um, well, having lived in London, and Andrew is a Londoner. Um, he's appeared on Just Right um, radio program, which aired out of CHRW-FM um, 96 at Western University, going back as far as 2009, so 13 years ago. <laughs> and since then, of course, we've crossed paths at all of the right occasions, uh, at the right events, and knowing the right people. So <laughs> it's good to see you again. Robert's interview with Andrew was conducted this past Sunday and is available in its entirety on the various video platforms where you can find any of Just Right's video productions. There were a lot of topics and themes they discussed in addition to those that you will hear on today's broadcast. As a frontline witness to Canada's infamous Ottawa Freedom Convoy last winter, Andrew Lawton can count himself as being among the many warriors on the front lines of what truly is an information war. His book, The Freedom Convoy, is another addition to the arsenal of weapons in that war, as is our broadcast today, which gets underway right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Let's start off then um, with some of the news of the day, which of course is um, Tamara Leach, uh, Pat King being released 
to Merrill Leach the second time. Why did the prosecutors, why did the police single out Pat King and Tamara Leach because there were a number of so-called organizers um, and spokesmen for the Freedom Convoy, but why these two in particular getting the terrible attention that they did? One thing that really jumps out at me about the government's whole response to this has been the use of fear to clamp down on dissent, to clamp down on protest. One, one great example of this is the infamous freezing of bank accounts that came under the Emergencies Act, which I, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a bit more depth later on. But the government only froze, I say only, it's an egregious violation of, of individual rights, but the government only froze a couple of hundred bank accounts. Now, compared to what they could have under the wording of the act done, this is a small amount because they basically gave themselves the power to uh, freeze anyone's account if they had donated so much as a nickel to the convoy. But I would argue that freezing the 200 accounts of the heavy hitters in the government's eyes still had the same effect because it produced a chill, a chilling effect where everyone who donated $10, $20 to the GoFundMe or the Give Sand Go started to live in fear that the government would be coming after them. And I think the charging of Tamara Leach, making her the example, throwing the book at her, serves a very similar purpose. It's as if to tell everyone else, don't you dare step out of line. Now, she had her name on the GoFundMe account, which is why I thought that she was singled out, is because she was the person who had the GoFundMe uh, put money into her own personal bank account because they had no idea of the, of the extent of support that they would receive from Canadians. And when it got into the, uh, what, eight digits? Yeah, eight digits, <laughs> over $10 million of support. Um, I guess that's why she became the focus. She was the the person with the name on the account. Is that what your submission? Uh, submission yeah, but I mean, the things she's charged for have nothing to do with the money. The things that she's charged for really have nothing to do with anything. So I, I think it's that because of her connection to the GoFundMe, she was a much more prominent person in the media. She was a much more prominent leader among the leaders. So I, I think it was that she was the highest profile person so if they did want to cut off the head of the snake, so to speak, she would be that head. Now, Pat King, um, you, you, you note, note in your book that the organizers as such, and I put that in quotations or air quotes, because this was a very much a grassroots event, self-organized. That, that's what comes out of the book for me. And I didn't realize this, that this was not a, a major organization. This was so grassroots. This was Canada in revolt against tyrannical rule. And I use that word advisedly, revolt, by the way, because these, these words have a way of coming back on you. <laughs> but Pat King is not mentioned highly by a lot of the organizers. Um, and uh, do you want to explain perhaps why? Uh, even though he was, again, arrested, like Tamara Leach, and spent a considerable amount of time in jail. I would, if you, if you'll mind, uh, if you don't mind indulging me, Robert, I need to take a detour here to explain why Pat King's role is so relevant first, because Pat King has been to the mainstream media's coverage of this, the quintessential figure of this all, the linchpin, the organizer, the most critical figure of it. And I 
looking at it from an observer's point of view, it's because he was the weak link. He's the one who does have uh, documented evidence of comments that are, I think, very unadvised, very uncivil to put them gently and, and to put them more serious. He's denied the Holocaust or at the very least has uh, minimized the Holocaust. He, he's done things that verge on, on the language that you hear from white supremacists. And so the media used him as being the example of why the convoy is all of these things that they were saying Pat King is. And I, I deal with it in the book, and I, I think a fairly even-handed way. I, I say that he was very much a part of the convoy story. He had a large audience that he used to promote the convoy in its early days, and a lot of people certainly would have learned about it through him. But as far as the organization itself, such as it is, he was not an organizer in any meaningful sense. He didn't have any authority. He didn't have any real leadership role over the fundraising, over the media relations. And to what you've alluded to there, he was actually pushed aside by the people that we would all see as being the organizers, people like Tamara Leach and Benjamin Dichter and Chris Barber. And they actually said to him point blank at one point on the journey to Ottawa, we don't want you here, go home. And there was a very tense conversation, but ultimately he, he refused. He, he just carried on to Ottawa and did his own thing. And this is one of those, again, mistruths or deceptions on the part of, um, in this case, the government and the media who wanted to pick out somebody who was weak, um, you know, or an easy target because of his past, uh, you know, comments. And uh, I think they probably did a, a good job of it because people did get the impression then, looking up Pat King, that um, he was not necessarily um, a shining example of uh, the, the, um, the love that was displayed on Parliament Hill during the Freedom Convoy. There was a groundswell feeling that I got and uh, many of my friends got as well from the convoy and that was a sort of a, a renewed faith in Canada seeing um, these tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people supporting the, uh, the Freedom Convoy over the weeks that it occurred. Uh, did you get that sense on the ground uh, being there that Canadians were genuinely happy to see that the true nature of this country is being revealed uh, on Wellington Street and around Parliament Hill during those weeks, rather than the narrative that we're given that um, uh, the standard bears the CBC, that Canada is this. And here's a pigeonhole that all of Canada fits into while people like myself People like you, people um, that I know of, um, they have a different understanding of Canada having grown up and uh, I'm in my 60s now and I've seen the narrative change quite a bit officially. It's, hmm. um, there's a different flavor in the grassroots of this country than is portrayed on the uh, dependent presses, television shows and on their front pages, I can tell you that. Did you feel that sense as well? I did. And, but for me, I think it came from a bit of a different place because one of my big frustrations during the last year uh, of the of the COVID pandemic is that I wasn't taking issue as much with government's responses to COVID. I was taking issue with those. But 
more troubling to me was how Canadians seem to be welcoming these things in is that I, I didn't see the lockdowns and the vaccine mandates and the vaccine passports as being the actions of a government on an unwilling population. I saw them as the actions of a government complying with what a very willing population wanted. And, and that was the part that was so difficult because it made me really fear, like, what what's the point of standing up for liberty if I'm in a population that generally doesn't value this? And when I saw the convoy start, I really felt that was changing. I felt like Canadians had had enough. This wasn't just anti-vaxxer versus pro-vax. It wasn't anti-lockdown versus pro-lockdown. It was people that did what they were told was the right thing. People that went along with every stage of this. They got their vaccines. They got their boosters. They wore their masks. They shut down their businesses. They took online classes. They did all of this. And then they first were starting to realize that Either A, it had gone on too long, or B, perhaps they were lied to about some of these things, and they really started to reclaim it. And that, for me, was was a, a much-needed dose of hope in the country I live in. Uh, agreed. And it certainly was refreshing to see that. Her name is Trish Wood. She was with Fifth Estate for 10 years as the host, and she has an amazing background in broadcast journalism. And she's a podcaster at this point. Trish has been exposing dangerous groupthink and injustice for decades and does it while digging deep with her guests. Please welcome to the show, Trish Wood. Thank you so much, Trish, for being with me. Hi. And, uh, you probably covered a lot of political things in your, um, you know, in your career, but our prime minister, he just needed to listen and show respect and he disrespected so many people. And it's really painful actually at this point to think what, what the, our country's becoming. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, his default position, his, his move out of the gate was the slander, the smear, the dishonest take on, on who the truckers actually were. I mean, I, I actually found it, I mean, it was hate speech. Right? right? What the way he was That's talking it. about the truckers was actually hate speech. And I, I remember watching it. I, I saw the trucker thing, uh, you know, starting. I got very um, emotionally involved in it because I, I've been doing this show for two years. And in the intro that you, that you read, what it doesn't say, um, because I haven't really updated it yet, is that we've done a lot of co like we just do COVID all the time. And, and I'm a former science journalist. So we've been warning and um, hosting some of the best scientific minds who are saying lockdowns aren't going to work, they're going to make it worse, which you know we know now is true, the great Barrington docs, all these people. And also the other thing too, Laura Lynn, for me, and I'm sure it's the same for you, it was two years of watching the abject cruelty that was being forced by the state on the citizens. And here's what I mean by that. We were instructed to let our old people die of broken hearts, locked yeah. away in long-term care and, and completely deteriorating out of nothing but loneliness, right? Complete broken hearts. Into saying goodbye to our loved ones on an iPad? Really? Into, into snitching on our neighbors, right? If they're not wearing a mask, you call this number, you see kids in the park call like. And, and we went along with that. Well, some people went along with that. And those of us, of us who were kind of watching that happen, 
where I was absolutely traumatized. I, I, I actually couldn't believe that my fellow citizens and my government, whether it's a liberal, conservative, whatever, I, I never expected this to happen the way it did with absolutely no concern for the mental health um, or the human connection between the citizens in, in the population. So for me, uh, I know it's a long explanation, I'm sorry, but, but for me, the truckers ended that. The truckers said to us, it's okay to say that you are vaccine hesitant, to hug your neighbor, to question masking, to not want to be locked down, to make your own decisions, um, and to do it respectfully with your fellow citizens. So how much time do we have? Because now we've had the truckers, like Canada's very lost. I just read a tweet, we're the only place that we're not allowed to fly now. I can't fly in my own country to get to Ontario. Yeah, I know. I mean, like, yeah. What the heck's wrong? Now, if the trucker thing didn't break what they did, if, if seizing all the accounts didn't break what Trudeau is done, and of all the scandals, and we still don't know what happened with why he left his teaching position. And I hear something's coming out about that. Got some feelers out. So, so we got a guy who's clearly very flawed. He's yeah. running our country. He's a, he's tyrannical. The world knows it has been referring to him. All kinds of leaders across the world referring to our Trudeau. And there's no end in sight in a way. We've got Teresa Tam telling us that the fall, <laughs> We have to prepare for the fall because, well, who knows what they'll come up with. Well, you know, yes, I I agree with you about him. He is embarrassing and he is destroying the country and he is succeeding in keeping us apart. Um, just in responding to what you were thinking about Naomi Wolf and there's only a certain point where you can get it back, I think that maybe the truckers, as you say, suggested we could get it back. I think the crushing of the truckers suggests we may have passed the point of no return. I think we may have actually passed the point of, of no return on that. That's to, so to scary point. what you're saying right now. Well, how are we going to get it back? What what is what is the you know, what is the remedial issue we have here, right? Like right. Brian Peckford's kind of working on it. The courts are have not been great. The courts reflect the craziness in the society. And I know that your that your guy Toby uh, said that we should talk a bit about the um, the reporters who had this kind of journalism under siege meeting. Yes. At at and I'm like, what? Like you were under siege? You know, I while you were there, I talked to Tamara a lot about media and stuff. In the sense that, you know, were they going to talk to the media? Were they not going to talk to the media? And um, you know. I, I don't feel beyond being told off by a few angry truckers once in a while those journalists were really under siege. The issue is not that the journalists are under siege in that situation. What they should be talking about was why were the truckers feeling hostile toward us? Why do we not have credibility with the people we're supposed to be serving through honest and credible journalism? Is it that the country's gone mad? Is it that there's, you know, these alt-right, the Proud Boys, ooh, they're terrible people. They know that they weren't there. These were normal, average Canadians who were taking a stand, many of them for the very first time in their lives. And they were mad at the media, and they said so. 
And instead of doing a poor me, you know, journalist under siege, they should have been saying, wow, maybe we got this wrong. Hi there, hello. Oh, hey, news site. It's me, it's the frickin' news site. No, I know. Did you hear about that whole McDonald's thing? People are pissed. What McDonald's thing? Here's my headline, okay, you ready? I guess. McDonald's says they're not bringing the McPizza back and people are upset. What, what, what do you mean? I just told you, no immediate plans to bring the McPizza back and people are reacting. But like, what people are you talking about? Ah! Well, you know what? I think it'd probably be best if you just reacted to that headline. Maybe skim the first paragraph. That'd be a lot better for me. No, okay, who is upset? Who are you talking about specifically? Uh, okay, well, deeper in the article, there is a tweet from someone who's like, Boo! Bring the McPizza back! It's got, like, seven retweets. Okay, so that's not really anything. Well, I got another tweet right beneath that one where a guy's like, Man, I remember the McPizza. Too bad they're not bringing it back. And that has less retweets, I'm guessing? Uh, that one does have less retweets. No retweets on that one, in fact. Okay, news site, you can't base entire articles off of people reacting to things on Twitter. So I beg to differ. I shared my article on my Twitter and people are reacting to it now. Are most of the replies about how stupid it is to be upset about something like that irrelevant? You're making people react to a story that's about people reacting to a story that's about something not happening. Yeah, getting some pretty good numbers too. Oh my god. Okay, well look, I got some other news I could share with you. You want to hear it? Not really. Here's the headline. You ready? Here, this is the headline. LeBron James says he's ready to retire. He said that. Swear to God. You should tweet about that right now. Go, just go right ahead. Okay, news site, I'm gonna ask you a question. What is the full quote? Actually, you can just retweet and react to the headline. That'd be great. What is the full actual quote that I'm guessing you have in, like, the fifth paragraph? I don't wanna say. That feels tacky. What is it? Tell me what it is. Okay, okay, okay. He says he's ready to retire when the time is right, but he's still got a couple good years left in him. Damn it, news site. Why do you do this? I got another story. Is it about Elon Musk? It's about Elon Musk. Can't you just report on important stuff? Like, what's going on in the world? What are scientists saying about stuff? What are the important stories? Well, the climate crisis is getting worse. There's a housing crisis. There's inflation. There are a bunch of wars going on. The economy's probably gonna collapse. So what was that about the McPizza? It's not coming back. And people are mad? Tell me more about that. Now, I want to know, Andrew, and I'm gonna ask you, uh, maybe I'll give you an answer first, and then you can tell me whether or not this jibes with you. Um, George Orwell wrote a little essay called Why I Write, or something to that effect, Why I Write. And one of the reasons he writes, and I think this might fit in with why you wrote this book, The Freedom Convoy, is historical impulse. Desire to see things as they are, to find out true facts, and store them up for the use of posterity. Now, whether or not that's why you wrote the book, that is certainly going to be an impact of the book because it's giving the truth, at least from a person who saw it firsthand. Is that, does that not fit in with perhaps why you wrote this book, Andrew? It, it does. And I, I think that there are two big reasons for that. The first is that it is something that is, I think everyone would accept as fact, easier to write something when it's fresh, when you have the, the facts available to you and you've had less time to sort of change the narrative in your own mind. 
But also, this was an event that really had, as one chapter is titled, dueling narratives to it. So it wasn't just where everyone was looking at this thing. And by the time, you know, February 20th rolled around, say, everyone could agree on what had happened. There were still vastly different interpretations of what the convoy was, who made up the convoy, what it stood for. And I felt, if I can say so with perhaps full awareness that it perhaps sounds arrogance, arrogant, I had, I think, the true version of events here that a lot of the mainstream media reporters whose coverage dominated the media landscape missed the mark on entirely. And that was a, a big part of why I wrote it as well. And, and I think that this is going to be infused throughout our discussion, and that is the mistrust of the independent media, the uh, mainstream media, so-called. I, I, I like to think that Rebel News, True North are becoming mainstream. So I'm going to veer away from calling that mainstream. I'm going to call them the dependent press because they're paid <laughs> by the Liberal government. And what was your understanding of the mood on the street of people towards the dependent press? Now, I recently listened to an interview you did um, on Just Right regarding Tommy Robinson in the UK and you had water thrown over your head because people thought that you were with the BBC. Was it similar here? I never experienced anything that I would put into the realm of assault, which, however minimal the harm of water on your head is, it's I, I think in the, the broadest sense, it's assault. So I never experienced anything like that in the convoy, never heard of anything like that directed to a mainstream reporter or otherwise. There was at one point a report, I think it was from Evan Solomon early on, that he had a can of something thrown at him. But I, I'm not clear. And this is not an indictment of Evan Solomon. I, I, I don't know if this was that a can was thrown at him or a can was thrown and it hit him or, or hit near him. And I, I'm not trying to minimize it because I do try to take a very fair view of this. And I, I would say there was a lot of hostility towards the media. And one notable example of this was anytime a reporter would do a stand-up, which is what you do when you're standing up, as the name suggests, you're looking at your camera, you're speaking, and you have the scenes behind you. A lot of people would surround them, would start shouting, would start heckling them. And in some cases, they needed to pull the plug on them. In other cases, they went to air with these sounds and slurs and uh, verbal attacks there. And I had said to a couple of people, all you're doing is giving them the ammunition they're going to use against you. You're, you're telling them that you are what they're saying you are, and, and you're giving the audience a, a visual reminder of that. And some people understood, some people didn't. That's fine. People can do whatever they're going to do. But I, I think that for the most part, the people that are the loudest, the people that wanted to be seen, the people that wanted to be heard, were still a small number in the grand scheme of things. And, and you look at the people that were just going about having real conversations with some of the few mainstream media rep reporters that were working the crowds, that were talking to people, trying to get a true sense of who they were and, and why they were there. But I also think that it was the independent media that won the day. And not just True North, but outlets like Rebel and Arupa Subramania, who's with the National Post, but is a very independent minded columnist and others as well that really, I think, showed why independent media is important in that. And I, I think that it was interesting seeing some of the skepticism that people had where I would go up with my microphone and I had a videographer with me for a couple of days and I'd say, hey, you know, can I ask you a couple of questions? And people say, who are you? 
And I'd say, oh, I'm Andrew with True North. He'd say, oh, True North, yeah, what do you want to know? And and it was like the first time that I've ever had that experience because typically you go somewhere and it's like, oh, if you're not CBC or you're not CTV, you're not a real journalist. So I think there was a turning point there. Yeah, we'll come back again to the journalism throughout the discussion. But one thing I noticed was that when you had to cross some of the barriers that the police set up near the end of the Freedom Convoy, you had to show credentials to get through as a as a journalist. Now, in my understanding, you don't need to be credentialed per se to go walk the streets of Canada to ask people their opinions on things or to record major events that are ongoing. Why do you think the police would do that? And why would they reject you just because you didn't have a parliamentary pass? Well, I think the most charitable answer to that is that country, including law enforcement officers, don't know how media works and they, they don't know how journalism works and that there is no special license or permit to be a journalist. I, I had a couple of conversations with police officers that were very good, in fact, when I, I was trying to walk by areas that were cordoned off, which they shouldn't have been, because even with the Emergencies Act, the peaceful assembly on city streets was supposed to be allowed. But that's another story. But they had decided that they weren't going to let anyone down these streets except journalists. So I'd go and I'd say, I'd like to go down the street, please. And they'd say, why? And I'd say, because I'm a journalist, they'd say, well, we'll prove it. And the challenge there is that I would say, well, there is no universal journalism credential in this country. And I, one officer, I think it was with the OPP, was surprised by this. He, he didn't actually know. He just sort of assumed that because all of these people had parliamentary press gallery badges, that everyone who was practicing as a journalist would be able to prove it in, in some way. And for me, it ended up being showing him on my phone, my Twitter profile that, you know, I just pointed, oh, yeah, so here are stories I've written. And, and he had said, oh, you're verified. You have the blue check mark go on through and it was laughable just because your experience depended entirely on who you got i had the next day another experience where a police officer said uh you know i don't care if you don't have a ppg badge i'm going to arrest you if you keep walking this direction so turn around and this was the reality and it was never legal it was never lawful and to this point there's not been any accounting for that yet no i think that a number of people have the false impression that there's some sort of guild out there that you have to pay dues to, to have a badge to say that I am an accredited journalist when nothing of the sort exists in this country, nor, and if it, if it ever did exist, that's the death of journalism. Yeah, and, and just to, if I could jump in there too, the other critical point is that if we look at the Charter of Rights and Freedoms for all of its shortcomings, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms enshrines press freedom. But I have to tell people this, press freedom is not a category of its own. It's an example given. It's basically a sub-freedom of freedom of expression, which everyone owns. So the idea that there is a separate rule for journalists who want to walk down Albert Street than there is for non-journalists who are just individual Canadians is itself quite a legally flawed position that the government took because all journalists who enjoy freedom are enjoying not a specific category of freedom, but the same liberty that everyone is supposed to have. No, that's well put. I like that. That's, that's very good, Andrew. It's Friday, February 4th, and I'm speaking to you from the hotel at the center of the Truckers Freedom Convoy in downtown Ottawa. Over the past year, the federal government in Canada, under Prime Minister Trudeau, has taken away Canadians' charter rights, constitutional rights to travel freely, 
has taken away truckers' rights to travel, their mobility rights, their ability to make a living under the Constitution for those who have chosen to be unvaccinated. This afternoon, the Chief of the City Police for, for Ottawa made announcements that are disturbing and should trouble Canadians and those around the world who support this trucker protest for freedom. The police chief essentially announced an assault on the protesters. He announced that very specific measures that we normally only see instituted by oppressive regimes around the world would be initiated. He effectively announced that he is going to be taking away Canadians' charter right of peaceful assembly and freedom of expression. We are being censored. Please get this out to the world. Viva Pierre Poilievre saw him two days ago. His speech was almost 100% Bernier's. So much so, he even closed with the same Diefenbaker quote. Thoughts on PP. I don't mind Pierre Poilievre as a politician. I commended him when he was grilling Justin Trudeau. I don't mind Roman Baber as a politician. I commended him when he was very vocal in his opposition to what I believe were unconstitutional and unscientific uh, COVID responses. I will, I will not support either of them for leadership. I, I might support one of them for leadership of the Conservative Party, but I'm not voting Conservative. They, they have to do more than empty talk promises. They actually have to do something to earn the vote, not promise to earn the vote, and then expect you to operate on trust, which they have violated. They have violated it because Pierre Poilievre was part of, of the, the party when Aaron O'Toole was li as liberal as the Liberals. He didn't speak out about it against the party leader. He didn't condemn O'Toole for being liberal 2.0. And I don't mean liberal in terms of policy. I mean just supporting stupid liberal policies. They, they supported vaccine passports. The party should suffer the consequences as a result. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Um, let's jump um, over to a bit of politics now, as if this isn't all about politics. And get your opinion about the Conservative Party of Canada. They uh, basically ignored the protest. Little, uh, some backbenchers may have uh, given a nod to them at, at some point in time, but not until the end did they sort of uh, en masse start to support some of the Freedom Convoy's uh, intentions. But they were basically, luck, like, like with the Liberals and the NDP, the Bloc and the Green, they ignored the Freedom Convoy. Um, your thoughts on that? I think it goes far beyond that and far earlier than that. They ignored this entire critical debate in Canada about vaccine mandates and vaccine passports and the problems of COVID restrictions. And, and we saw that front and center in the 2021 federal election when Aaron O'Toole uh, refused to stand up in any meaningful way for people in in this in this boat and and it wasn't just about you need to stand up for the unvaccinated you can just take the principled stand for freedom for individual choice in this matter 
And there were a lot of issues with Aaron O'Toole's leadership about a number of things. It wasn't just this, but we saw the People's Party of Canada have an incredible showing in the 2021 election relative to the previous election. And they were the only political party that was talking about these issues. And I don't think it's the surprise that they found a new constituency in the Canadian population when they were doing it. So you fast forward to when the convoy is going to Ottawa. And I think in this, what, that was September, October, November, December, January. So in the four months since September, Canadians who had been dutifully going along with all the restrictions were starting to tire of them as well. People were tiring of vaccine passports and mask mandates. No one understood the trucker vaccine mandate, which really had no basis in science. And you then see Canadians starting to say, okay, this is ridiculous. The truckers are rising up. These essential worker heroes that we were told for the entirety of the pandemic are the ones that we need to lionize and exalt for keeping us going, for working while we're staying home and keeping things moving in society and in the Canadian economy and all of that. And then you get this protest led by these people. The Canadians are starting to support in large numbers, and Aaron O'Toole can't answer the single question about, are you going to meet with them? And it was, well, I've, I'm, I'm going to continue to meet with truckers. Well, are you going to meet with these truckers? Well, we've been having conversations with truckers. No, no, no. And, and he couldn't do it. And, and that really was the beginning of the end, because I think the Conservative Party had moved and Canadian society had moved. And when I say the party, I mean, the, the Conservative base had moved and the, the society had moved to such a point where checking out of that issue was no longer acceptable. And about Maxime Bernier, you're absolutely right. He was the most steadfast supporter of everything the Freedom Convoy stood for, and he was there on the street amongst the uh, the protesters. And um, perhaps much to the chagrin of um, the official organizers, because they quite rightfully wanted to keep everything nonpartisan. Um, did you have any discussions with some of the organizers about the presence of Maxime? And I understand that Pierre Polyev um, walked by the protesters at some point in the late stage of the um, any uh, idea about the partisan um, leanings of the organizers or whether or not they were chagrined by the presence of Maxime in the People's Party of Canada? I, not, none of them that I spoke to seemed bothered by their presence there. They, they all seem to be, I think, probably on side with the People's Party of Canada more than the Conservative Party of Canada. And a, a number of convoy organizers ran for the Ontario Party in the last election, not the PPC, but again, a, an, an alternative to the mainstream Conservative Party provincially. And I think that they all sort of accepted that politicians were going to come, but they didn't want it to be a politically led movement. And, and I think there was some frustration with uh, how people like Maxime Bernier were speaking and having press conferences and stuff like that. And some of the convoy organizers really wanted to control the message in a, a fairly rigid way and, and were uncomfortable with that aspect of it. But I, 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 took, I took that not as a specific slight at Maxime Bernier, but in general at the class of politicians that they feared, rightfully or wrongfully, were trying to co-opt this movement of theirs that they tried to keep as being nonpartisan. And, and again, Maxime Bernier wasn't the only one there. Jim Carahalios with New Blue was there. Derek Sloan with the Ontario Party was there. Leslie Lewis and a number of conservative MPs were there. So it wasn't just that, but but I, I think that was the issue is that they didn't want this to look like it was an, an organ of a political party. Mm -hmm. um, in the book, you talk about the downfall of Aaron O'Toole as being a direct result or at least associated with 
uh, his lack of um, willingness to even engage with the convoy. Um, do you really think that's the case? Because that happened just a short few days after the convoy started, even though it had a lot of momentum leading up to it, it as about five days to cross the country from BC. Um, or was this part of a, um, a larger groundswell of um, antipathy towards the leadership of the Conservative Party, which has, over the last five years or so, at least since Trudeau's been in power, been totally ineffectual, totally living in fear of being, you know, labeled, put a label, doesn't matter what label, you know, they just want to make sure that everybody loves them, that if, if Trudeau is doing this, we'll do it better. If Jagmeet Singh, you know, wants this, we'll do it twice as much. That kind of um, a typical conservative uh, narrative that we saw with Andrew Scheer and Erin O'Toole as just a bunch of Trudeau sycophants, um, ineffectual, and this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Do you think maybe that was like the straw? Or do you really think that it was the, the Freedom Convoy um, that really got rid of Erin O'Toole in the end? I, I don't think the convoy created any change in O'Toole's position that didn't already exist in some form. But I do think it gave the critics of Aaron O'Toole the impetus to do something about it. And it gave them a fair bit of cover because I think there was a lot of frustration by Canadians and specifically by conservative members that this movement that was a slam dunk for them. It was they it was blue collar. It was started in Western Canada, but it had national appeal. It was led by truckers who were the essential worker pandemic heroes. It was this slam dunk that everyone should be standing up and supporting. And people may remember that even after Aaron O'Toole wouldn't take a position on it, Candace Bergen, who at the time was the deputy leader, she did. She put out a statement talking about how supportive she was of this protest. So I, I think that it really showed that Aaron O'Toole and his party were not in sync at all. And that did give the critics that existed before this, that existed before the convoy, the political cover to pull the trigger at that exact point. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned workers. This was a sort of a workers revolt, which is interesting because it's absolutely true. It's a blue collar revolt. And yet the NDP, the New Democratic Party led by Jagmeet Singh, is in lockstep with Trudeau. It is now a coalition government, basically liberal NDP government. And um, you would have thought that a New Democrat would be in support of this um, why, the, why the change in the New Democratic Party under Jagmeet Singh from one supposedly or allegedly supporting blue collar, supporting workers and their right to work uh, without these ridiculous unscientific mandates to a party now that we have which is more or less just propping up the, um, the World Economic Forum, UN agendas, 2021, 2030, anything that comes out from outside of Canada saying this is the way we're going, Trudeau is your leader, you better follow him. Um, how do we get from, you know, Ed Broadbent to a Jagmeet Singh? I think one of the big explanations for that is, is that their support for protest, for civil disobedience, for all of these values, and even for the working class, only extended to these people when they stand up for a particular set of values. It's not a principled stand for democratic protest and peaceful assembly. It's a stand for people using those things in pursuit of something they already agree with. 
And there was a great line, I think I quoted in the book, and I, I can't remember it offhand, but Jagmeet Singh is asked how he reconciles being a party that stands up for protest and even stood up for rail blockades against oil pipelines, how he justifies supporting the crackdown on civil liberties when it came to the Freedom Convoy. And his answer was, yeah, we support uh, climate protesters. We support women's rights protesters. We support gay rights protesters. We, we support protests. And it's like, well, but, but hang on, what about this protest? And he basically gave the answer that, well, only when we like what they're protesting for. Yeah, that's one of the uh, positive aspects of this Freedom Convoy that we will probably accumulate during the discussion that occurred. And that is that we are starting to understand some more of the inner workings of people like Judmeek Singh and the NDP and the Liberals and Conservatives as we are now given examples that they're not in favor of protests per se, or protests qua protests, they have to be on the right agenda. Otherwise, you may be blue collar, you may be a trucker, you may have a, a card-carrying member of the New Democrats, but um, unless you toe the line uh, as far as our agenda goes, we're not going to support you. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. My name is Keith Wilson. I'm a lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. The Justice Center and a team of lawyers are here on the ground in Ottawa to assist the truckers and the Freedom Convoy 2022 with whatever legal needs they might have. You're going to hear from Tamara Leach. With Tamara is Chris Barber, one of the key uh, leaders of the Freedom Convoy 2022. So with that, I'd ask Tamara to come forward and make her statement. Thank you. Thank you. We are here out of love for our families, our communities, and our nation. These past two years, the COVID mandates have divided us. This protest be began because of the federal government's restrictions on trucker freedoms. Um, our movement has grown in Canada and across the world because common people are tired of the mandates and restrictions in their lives that now seem to be doing more harm than good. As of today, Sweden, Denmark, UK, Norway, Finland, Ireland and Switzerland have removed all COVID mandates and restrictions. We are therefore calling on all levels of government in Canada to end all COVID mandates and restrictions. We will continue our protest until we see a clear plan for their elimination. So far, no one from the federal, provincial or municipal government has spoken directly with us. Instead, they are using you, the media, to portray us as racists, misogynists, and even terrorists. As a woman with Métis heritage, a mother and a grandmother, I am offended. The reality is that members of this freedom movement are average, peace-loving, and law-abiding citizens from all walks of life who are fed up with being disrespected and bullied by our government. We continue to see additional Canadians coming to Ottawa every day for peaceful demonstrations. We want to thank the hundreds of residents of Ottawa who have stepped forward to show their support, providing accommodations, food and just plain friendship to members of our convoy. This love of community is what Canada is all about. 
We also want to thank the thousands of people who have so generously donated to this protest to GoFundMe. I am confident that GoFundMe now has all the information needed to immediately lift the suspension they put on our campaign. I want to thank all Canadians from the bottom of my heart for our quest to restore our freedoms. Thank you. There's an aspect of the Freedom Convoy that really surprised me, and it comes out in your book, and I didn't realize it until I read your book. And that is that this was a self-organizing event. And I mentioned it before, that this was not a top-down event. Tamara Leach started a convoy um, in the West. Other convoys started up in the East. And I understand there was probably about five in total uh, of all of the official, if you want to, or organized convoys. And yet when they get to Parliament Hill, they find out that other truckers just came you know, and took up all the choice spots, <laughs> if you will. And when they were negotiating with police later on, uh, you know, to try to clear a particular intersection um, around, uh, was it Sussex and, and Rideau, that um, they said, basically, look, we can ask them to move, but we don't know these people. There's no official list of truckers. There's no organization. This is not a left-wing protest. This is Canadians protesting, and we can do our part to try to help um, the police when they wanted to unblock a particular intersection for good reason. And um, they find that, you know, they're not in charge per se, you know, really. Um, did that strike you as um, an interesting development in this whole affair as well as it struck me? It, it did, certainly. And, and I think I understood at the beginning when I was covering this that it wasn't entirely top down, but I, I don't think I realized how and I don't even want to say disorganized because it was very organized in some other ways, but how non-organized, because I think that's a, a morally neutral term, how non-organized this was. And this is not, by the way, an indictment of Tamara Leach and Tom Arazzo. I think they're the first to admit this, that they didn't control people. They didn't tell them what to do. And uh, th there was a huge risk in that, too, because uh, they couldn't they didn't know who these people were. They couldn't make a 100 percent guarantee that not one of them would do something violent at some point if they had a bad day. All they could do is put out their message, which is that we're not here to up overthrow the government. We're here to end the vaccine mandates. We're here to end the vaccine passports. We are here for a peaceful protest and we are here to to show love and they put that message out and the people that were there bought into that the people that were there that was what they wanted to yeah and it, it, i guess it came to a head or at least demonstrably so that when they finally did ask the some of the truckers around this particular intersection to move what happened when the police came uh, to remove the barricades, the concrete barricades, people thought that they were coming to remove all of the trucks and it was all over. So the people on the street just en masse um, went to that intersection <laughs> and prevented them from And started singing Oh Canada. And they started singing Oh Canada, yeah. I mean, that just shows that this was not an organized event in the sense that people thought it might be. You know, and I thought perhaps it was um, more organized than it turned out to be when I'm thinking, OK, well, why are they still hanging around here and kids are here? And I'm going, you know, it's going to hit the fan real soon. And they got kids there on the streets. I mean, think I'm thinking even I'm thinking, you know, and I'm, I support the truckers 100 percent. Maybe now to time, maybe now's the time to, um, you know, clear out some of the more vulnerable people there. But it, it wasn't up to anybody to do that. 
No, and I think that the mistake that government made and the mistake that media made was, and I mentioned this earlier a little bit, thinking there was just one thing at the top that if they got, if they took that uh, piece off the board, that the whole thing would end. And, And they thought that was the money. And I'm, I must admit, that was one of my mistakes first covering this, is thinking the money was a lot more relevant to the protest than it actually was. Because when the bank accounts got frozen, which was, I think, a critical part of the government's response, it didn't affect the convoy organizers themselves really at all. And I think this was the fascinating part of it that people didn't realize, because more money just showed up. People started bringing cash. They started sending Bitcoin. They started doing all of these other things. And when the police cracked down on fuel. People just started flooding the streets with jerry cans full of diesel, and it didn't really matter. So the problem with an organic movement from the police perspective is that it's impossible without just playing whack-a-mole for weeks on end to end it in a very easy way. Um, What role do you think the technology of today played in this particular protest? Because my own point of view is that this would not have happened if it had not been for things like cell phones, uh, people going around with their cell phones, documenting it on the street as citizen journalists, um, Zello, uh, means of messaging back and forth, encrypted means too with Signal and WhatsApp and things like that, Facebook and Twitter and all the uh, social media doing an end run around the established press. Um, what are your thoughts on the role of technology in this particular convoy? So one of the most compelling pieces of journalism that I did any day I was covering the convoy was simply walking around with my phone, streaming live video of what I was seeing. And that that's not exactly intellectually hefty material, but it was what people wanted because people who couldn't be there just wanted to see it. They wanted to see that raw unadulterated view of what was happening on the ground because they didn't trust the edited snippets they were seeing posted by mainstream media reporters. And and I took my cues from from the audience. I said, if that's what you want, that's what I'll do. And I, I kept my phone as charged as I could and walked around and just showed this. And if I saw something happening, I tried to narrate it or otherwise I just walk around so people could see. And I did these for a couple hours at a time. And I think you are right about this, is that people wanted to be there. And the people that were there wanted to share that they were there. And they did this on social media. And the people that were actually there uh, had these networks going on, Telegram and Zello and these different apps. And that was how they kept in communication and kept organized. And, And that was what contributed to what you were talking about earlier, that grassroots groundswell. So, I mean, maybe it could have existed with word of mouth and CB radios, but I really think they need did that new media the ability to communicate with each other and also the new media platforms and alternative media platforms to promote it and to discuss it and cover it fairly i think that really was the perfect storm that that made this as big a sensation as it was um let's end the discussion with um perhaps what's going on in with true north and uh, how your success has been um i remember when you just started out not just a few years ago um, how's True North doing? How are you doing? And what do you uh, what do you plan for the near future, Andrew? 
Well, I think planning for the new future, near future is a bit tough because I didn't plan for the convoy, which ended up becoming the uh, quintessential story I've, I've covered this year. So I, I, I should say that uh, so far, I guess there are still a few months left of the year. Uh, True North has been growing incredibly in the last couple of years, but certainly the last year between the election and the convoy. And I think in general, there's been really a, a surge in support for independent media. So I'm going to ride that wave out, go where the story takes us all. And, and it's been a, a true pleasure. And I mean, I wrote this book as an individual, but it was really building off of the work that I was doing as a journalist for True North in Ottawa and covering it remotely as well. And, and you know, it's so, so humbling going around and, and seeing people that, that really felt like independent media was their only source of truth in the course of COVID and, and in general. And, and that was actually quite humbling. So uh, we'll keep going with it. Thank you for what you do, Andrew. Thank you for your book, The Freedom Convoy, Three Weeks. Um, the Inside Story of Three Weeks That Shook the World. Uh, it's a must-have for everybody's bookshelf. You can get it virtually anywhere books are sold. Um, I got mine from Amazon.ca, but uh, you can get it in Indigo, <laughs> at least online. Uh, once again, Andrew, thank you very much for all you do and for the book. Thank you, Robert. It's been a pleasure. When it comes to True North, the operative concept is the word true. And getting the truth out has today become the burden and responsibility of everyday average citizens who are capable of recognizing that truth. Thankfully, this is something they're able to do because of social media, alternative news platforms, cell phones, cameras, and mobile recording devices, and the very technology that was also intended to be used by the state against its citizens. The information war that I referred to at the beginning of our show today is something that has been a part of all human wars since mankind began to engage in wars. What makes that war different today, in 2022, is that for the first time in history, that information is no longer exclusively controlled by the state. Had it been so, not only do I believe that none of the protests would have happened, and even if they did, we would never have known the truth about them. There are only two ways in which all conflicts are ultimately resolved, through persuasion or by force. When persuasion fails, just use force, goes the old saying, reflecting a philosophy employed by tyrants and dictators for centuries. But it's also a principle that applies to the rule of justice, doesn't it? When criminals and politicians cannot be persuaded to refrain from using force and fraud against their fellow men, they too must be forced to do so if we wish to live in a civilized society. That's why Isabel Patterson, author of God of the Machine, always reminded her readers that when we speak of government, what is being governed is the use of force itself. On the political polarity of left and right, the question then remains, will that force be used to protect individual freedom and its constituents of life, liberty, and property, which is the right side of the polarity, or will it be used to restrict and prohibit individual freedom to the detriment of the many and the benefit of the few who have the guns, which is the left side of the polarity? Guns can win battles, but they never win wars. Those are won by the force of persuasion, even when people have been persuaded to be self-destructive. In the hands of the state, that persuasion is exercised through propaganda and censorship. In the hands of free individuals, that persuasion is exercised through freedom of speech, open debate, and voluntary association. 
and that's an avenue that is unique to this period of history. Once a bullet is expended from the chamber of its weapon, its immediate power of force has ceased. But the bullet of truth, released by the trucker's freedom convoy, continues on its path to this day and will continue on that course well into the future. In other words, it's shows like this and networks of other truth-seeking folks like those at True North and the thousands of, as Robert might put it, independent voices that are the greatest forces feared by tyrants everywhere. And the degree of their irrationality and desperation is a measurement of that fear. So what's it going to be? Do you have to be forced? Or can I still get away with just persuading you to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction? Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be I'm back and we got this election in the bag. Now take it easy. The only reason I'm doing this is to save Granny from Beverly Hills and Beverly Hills from Granny. Well, wait, you see what I got for the campaign. You're going to be a shoe-in whether you like it or not. The only thing that matters is keeping Granny's mind off her shotgun. Jed? I'm ready to go. Granny, I thought we were going to win this feud with votes. We are. But this is for them that ain't got a clear view of the issue. It stays here. I'm getting my votes. Like every other politician. You mean we're going to buy them? <laughs>